This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Mr. Hamilton, it's uh, middle of August. Here we are. Oh, God. Some sheep are dropping. Some sheep will be dropping. And what, two weeks, three weeks, and then we're rolling into the main hunting season already. Where did the hell, where the hell did the time go? You know what that means, right? Oh, you're coming up soon. That means that I am getting on an airplane and I'm going to go somewhere and I'm going to chase sheep. Yeah, but don't rub it in at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. So, uh, yeah, just a couple more weeks. Uh, so, past weekend was the uh, Jurassic Classic, another great event. Um, 58 people from all across North America get together to raise money for wild sheep. They're out on the Fraser River mm-hmm. and hooking into giant sturgeon. And just a great, great, you know, wild sheep family, getting our family together. And I love this because it's such a collaborative uh, uh, event. There's people from wild sheep chapters all over, but um, Joey BC has, uh, is a partner with us on it. And then we have a whole bunch of uh partners that support us. So uh, SCI Chapter and Affiliates, Wild Sheep Foundation, it's under the Wild Sheep Foundation umbrella. They, of course, sell two teams at Sheep Week every year, one at the Life Member Breakfast and one on the Thursday night, I believe it is. Mm -hmm. And then um, a number of other chapter and affiliates all across North America. Wild Sheep Foundation Alberta had one last year. They'll have one again this year. So um, it's a very exclusive event. It's tough to get a team. You kind of got to watch for them on these live auctions. Um, the people that are currently at the event get to come back, um, but we only have so many teams that can come back because we do sell them every year at these live auctions. The cool thing is, is that we're raising money for wild sheep at these auctions too. So we donate two teams down to Wild Sheep Foundation. They sell those teams to make money and um, and that raises is money for their cause as well. So yeah, great collaboration. Oh yeah. How long has the, the Jurassic been going on now? Uh, this is our sixth year. Wow. So. And it's first time yeah. we missed it last year. So, No, we had it last year. Two years ago, we missed it. Oh, yeah. right. Last year, we were able to hold it. Right. But it was kind of a pared down event. Yeah. We had, typically we have um, 28 boats, 56 teams. I said 58 earlier. 56, 56 anglers is what it is. And um, no, I got it mis- mis- mixed up. 14 boats. 28 teams, 56 anglers there. I nailed it. <laughs> and uh, uh, last year with uh, COVID and stuff right. like that, a bunch of our American teams couldn't That's get up, was, so they yeah. ended up having to cancel. Yeah, it was a drag. So still really good turnout, um, but it was um, it was just a little different last year because of the, the whole COVID thing. But we were able to hold it. Still a great fundraiser. We made some money for wild sheep and uh, supporting our mission and our projects and, and doing great sheep for wild sheep conservation. Oh, yeah, no kidding. And Diener and his crew are just unreal as well, right? They're, they're just – Dean is uh, – a hell of a guy. I got a chance to hang out with him at, uh, holy crap, it would have been 2020 in Reno and just get to know him a little bit and talk about passion. Just, yeah. I, I don't think there's anybody out there that's more passionate about the the sturgeon than he is and nobody nobody better to, to get you out on the water. So, speaking of that, we had our, our membership draw there. Yeah. So, congratulations there. Giveaway. Um, that was a uh, fishing adventure on the Fraser mm-hmm. again for Sturgeon, yeah. uh, for stream, Streamline Guiding. That was sponsored by Wood Wheaton. So, thanks again to Wood Wheaton Supercenter for the support of that whole project. First, second prod, uh, or that whole promotion. Second prize was uh, Frontier Men'sman, Frontiersman Gear Knives. Uh, Tanner supported us with that. And then third place was a um, swag. A, uh, swag, yeah, for the society. So, um, if you haven't heard, Check out the website. Check out social media. We're contacting the winners as we speak. But uh, yeah, great, great promotion, and uh, signed up a, a, a bunch of new mm-hmm. members and just to support our mission and our cause. So with that draw done, we've got a couple more to announce. We, we we're never done with the raffles, though. Yeah, the raffles we just keep adding more. You know, you guys keep telling us well, you want more raffles, and we keep providing and we keep selling them out. So we wrapped up our Stone Glacier raffle last weekend. And we just dropped a whole bunch of new ones this week. So uh, the big one to check out is the Big Boar Rifle. Um, Don Lynham has generously donated another gorgeous rifle. Um, I think this one's in it. Uh, I'm not even going to guess the caliber. There's He had two that we, we currently have, and we chose one of the two, and I can't remember the caliber right now. But perfect sheep rifle and uh, 
gorgeous rifle and part of the big bore series great support yeah it's a lot a lot of people see the name or hear hear the name big bore and they assume it's a big bore but actually the name is in memory of uh uh dave marsh that was his nickname was big bore so it's it's not the size of the rifle it's there's there's a meaning to a person behind it so don't get confused yeah, if we if we look at all the donations over the years that Don has done in Dave's memory yeah. through the Big Boar donation, uh, you know, he was donating two, three rifles a mm-hmm. year. So just phenomenal support from Don and, um, you know, great, great work for, for conservation. And we're really grateful for, for everything he's done yeah. to support us. So uh, you can pick up tickets, go over to the website, wildsheepsociety.com and click on the raffle tab on the homepage and you'll see that we got, I think there's four new ones that we currently have up there. Yeah. And for those that don't know, every year we launch our fall wild sheep raffles. We can't announce what we're doing until we get the raffle license. All I can tell you is it's going to be freaking epic. We got a great lineup this year. And, and just as always, there's some great opportunities all around that you're just going to love. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of uh, conservation supporters, though, this this last episode we just wrapped up was freaking amazing. Uh, Keith, Be- Keith Beasley from Canada in the Rough joined us. And we had just just about an hour bang on. To, to have a, a BS session about uh, what was going on with Canada and Rough, and I, I didn't know that it had been going on for so long. And uh, yeah, yeah, you say nineteen years, something like, like that. Yeah, yeah, uh, and yeah, phenomenal. Uh, you know, and and what a great program, right? And and it all, really cool to sit and talk to Keith. He's a humble guy, um, and he's he's really. Uh, really cares about our hunting legacy, making sure that his kids get to do it and their his grandkids, um, and really right message. And lots of time, as we're talking, I kept thinking one campfire, one campfire. I was gonna, I kept wanting mm-hmm. to say it. And of course, you know, I don't need to tell Keith about one campfire, no. but uh, you know, it, it's really what one campfire is all about. Is trying to change that narrative around hunting and and get sort of that that, that middle eighty percent to sort of be okay with the hunting narrative, which you know. There's a lot of people that are trying to do the other thing, the 10% that are working against us that are trying to say how bad we are as hunters. So, you know, Keith's message was kind of uh, one camp it for really was. a lot of the time. It, it really was. Yeah. And as as he states in there that uh, we need to protect our hunting heritage, right? And, and as you stated, it's not – we don't have to preach to the hunters. And I, I get a lot of people – a lot of hunters will message and say, I've never heard of one campfire. Why? And I just simply say that means we're, we're doing the messaging properly because hunters don't need to be told that hunting is good. And it's, it's the non-hunters that we, we need to talk to. So that's that's where the messaging is targeted and that's what we'll keep doing. So yeah, I, I think uh, Keith nailed it and didn't even realize he was nailing what One Campfire was about. So awesome episode, really enjoyed the chat. Yeah, very cool. So with that, off to episode 87 with uh, Canada in the Roughs, Keith Beasley. Across Canada and throughout the world, if you come across a campfire in the woods, on a mountaintop, or next to a river, you'll find warm company and friendly people gathered around. Regardless of your lifestyle or place you call home, we invite you to learn more about what it means to be a hunter in the modern era. If you love the outdoors, care about where your food comes from, and are concerned for the future of wildlife and the environments that they need to survive, Pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. Good day, Keith. Welcome to Talk of Sheep. Thanks for uh, connecting with us. We're stoked to have you on the show. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me and uh, happy summer, soon to be fall, which we all get excited about. Mm-hmm. Best time of year, right? I think so. I think so. Yeah. Only two more So what's two on more weeks for me and I'm chasing bear. We open mid-august up here so i'm good mid-august yep yeah that's pretty exciting yeah yeah the agenda for us we we uh unfortunately have nothing in the bc mountains so i can't uh, i can't get excited with that um some great memories out there but for the fall we have uh we'll be chasing moose on three different newfoundland trips which is very exciting all remote uh either fly in by chopper or by plane so that's always one of the highlights of our falls, we spend a lot of time on the East Coast chasing moose. Uh, we have New Brunswick bear uh, coming up. We have uh, we drew a very hard to get Ontario bull tag in the northwest corner. Uh, remote again fly in. Uh, we have Ontario white-tailed deer up Rainy Lake, Lake of the Woods area. We have Manitoba whitetails coming up on a black powder hunt. Uh, remote North Country. Um, 
which as you probably heard, they got a ton of water this year. So things are kind of crazy up there. Um, Saskatchewan whitetails, Saskatchewan waterfowl. And we're any day now, any hour now waiting to hear if we drew in a 12 year Alberta pronghorn tag. So we're kind of, we think we should get that with our points, but we're not really sure. Awesome. That that kind of sums up the fall and already got four or five shows filmed from the spring already too. So not much really. It's pretty quiet, I guess. <laughs> yeah, just 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 another day at the office, Kyle. I guess that's what you can say. Awesome. So the black powder hunt, just out of curiosity, uh, in Manitoba. So is that spot and stock? Are you in a tree stand? How does that work? Yeah, great question. Um, it's it's tree stand hunting. Um, yeah. This this location is northern heavy timber. So I don't think it'd be very conducive to the spot and stock stuff. Um, I know you guys, where you live, you're real spoiled with lots of spot and stock opportunities, as is Alberta. And um, but we don't see a lot of that on this this half of the country so much. Um, so it'll be uh, mostly tree stand last week of October into early November. So real pre rut rattling grunting stuff for the whitetails. And um, we're very fortunate filming in Canada and being from Canada, where we get to take advantage of the Canadian season. So. As you guys are well aware, you can balance products, provinces as a Canadian resident um, and working with either hosts being um, other hunters or residents or outfitters. The outfitters can bring us in during Canadian only open season. So they're not using up their their allocations or their tags through the American system. So we can come in a week before the Americans come on a, a legal Canadian season. And the black powder one in Manitoba is a good one for us to do that. We did it last year as well. Um, and come in on that that week of black powder and had a great hunt. So is that what you guys will do with the pronghorn hunt in Alberta as well? Same deal? Um, or will you do it on a permit, uh, hunter host or how does that work? So, yeah. So good question. That That's on our own tag, meaning we, we've drawn that one ourselves. So it won't be through an outfitter. Um, but we've drawn before and went through an outfitter. So we're not using their allocation. This one to use that tag, we still need a resident to draw with us. So we have a friend out there that will be drawing with us um, to get that because you need somebody on the same number of points to draw. Alberta's got a great system. Um, there's a point system, so you kind of know what you're dealing with. Like last year, I hunted mule deer with a, with a friend, uh, 11 years on that draw uh, down in the trophy zones of the south, right along the BC border, actually in the southwest. Um, but there's lots of over-the-counter areas in Alberta as well um, where you, you can get a mule deer elk or a whitetail tag or a bear just over-the-counter. Um, you don't need to get in the draw. They're just not considered, quote unquote, the tougher regions to get out of the trophy zones. Yeah, I did exactly that last fall as well. I had a mule deer draw and went out and uh, my cousin hosted me and um, took me out. And uh, same thing, you just got to be on the same priority in the whole works. And yeah, it worked out great. We had a great hunt and great time. And the cool thing is for you on that pronghorn hunt, you can just pick up a whitetail tag over the counter and hunt whitetails as well. Right? That's right. That's right. And we're, we're during the rifle, which means middle of October. Please don't quote me on that. But as opposed to the archery, which is early September, and I don't know how easy the whitetail, like I had a whitetail tag there last year on 11-year mule deer draw. We seen them, but um, didn't didn't not as many as as you think in the area. We were very there wasn't a tree to be seen for twenty miles, so the white tails were there, but not like the muleys. But yeah, it's a beautiful right. province. I mean, listen, guys, the <laughs> it makes me chuckle when people ask, "Where's your favorite place to go in Canada?" I mean, this country is spectacular from top to bottom, from coast to coast to coast. It it, it has unbelievable things everywhere you go, everywhere you turn. It doesn't matter where you are. And as, as beautiful as Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver are, they're beautiful in their own right. Just I'd rather avoid them when it's hunting season. So you've got Ontario for mule or whitetail. You've got Manitoba for whitetail, Sask for whitetail, uh, possibly Alberta. Where are you going to kill the biggest buck? Who's got the bigger? Uh, well, it, we know who has the big whitetails, but where are you going to get the biggest one? Yeah, see, now you're just setting me up for failure, right? Like, there, <laughs> there's no right answer to that. And uh, my brothers and I own the Ontario record books. So we do all the Boone and Crock and Pope and Young scoring for the province. We have 100 volunteer measures. So... It's a it's a unique conversation. Um, everywhere has spectacular whitetail deer, but let's call a spade a spade. I mean, Paul drew this lucky straw to go to Saskatchewan. I would suggest that he will have the best odds of killing a giant. But but of all the hunting we've done across the country, chasing whitetails from BC to New Brunswick, um, the biggest whitetail we've ever harvested score-wise, Boone and Crockett, antler inches-wise, not talking body weight because I really don't know most of them, um, was right here 20 minutes from our office on farms we've hunted since we were a kid and I think we were just as stunned as anybody when this deer showed up and grew the way he did and we were able to to take him uh Kevin being the lucky one on that 
Um, but we shot a, a close. He was gross one ninety eight with a twenty three inch inside. Um, just an unbelievable, unbelievable deer. He went tip to tip, tip to tip. He went, I think, twenty eight or twenty nine. Um, but he only got credit for twenty three or twenty four inside because the longest beam was twenty three or twenty four. Just a spectacular wow. white tail. So you never know is what I'm trying to tell you. You never know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's good genetics. That surprises me, that that quality of deer. Well, and, you know, you guys do so much hunting too. It surprises me that I would, if I was to guess, I would have said, oh, you killed your biggest deer in Saskatchewan. And or people think Alberta. it's a Saskatchewan deer. When pictures pop up on Facebook or, or Instagram where it appears in an ad or something, people assume it's a Saskatchewan deer because they do produce dozens of those a year. And our county has produced five of those in 50 years, right? So – it is rare, but it goes to show you that any animal with the right setup and especially the right genetics can do things like that. But um, probably another day, another conversation, but much like the sheep world, they need age to perform and be the best they can be. And that's no different than whitetail moose, elk. They, they need to hit their prime, which is four minimum, but five, six, sevens where they put on those tremendous antlers. And it's in our area, it's really hard to get them that age because the hunting pressure is so heavy. Yeah, right on. Age age matters. That that's a thing. <laughs> Joke. We should make more bumper we- stickers and T-shirts about it, right? And and super awkward conversation. I find, and, and I don't want to veer off wherever you're trying to go with this conversation. But every legal hunter with a legal tag, we support, respect, and encourage to hunt whatever makes them comfortable and whatever makes their hunt successful and amazing to them. And uh, I'll, I'll sure tell you that all my kids have a green light on anything they want to shoot when they're learning to hunt. But I'll also tell you that once once you've been around a little bit and harvested and been fortunate enough to be successful, um, no one told my brothers and I to start hunting big bucks or start chasing mature moose or any of that. It just naturally happened for us. And we kind of wanted to chase older, bigger animals and um, for the health of the populations and for the success of future hunting, I think it's a very, a very uh, effective, well-managed practice for all species to try to think like that. Yeah, I like your uh, your statement um, for the future of the species or whatever you just said there. Like, you know, this is the right thing for for the, the resource. And in, in BC, we had an issue here with uh, a bunch of young sheep were shot last year. Um, and a lot of them were underage. They were, they didn't make the uh, legal and were confiscated. So, you know, we're really trying to, you know, I guess, preach to our membership and, and sheep hunters in BC that, hey, guys, let's do better. Let's uh, let's harvest older animals and mature animals that are mm-hmm. legal. For starters, that's a good place to start. No, guys, is that is that something that is new or is that trending? Like, like why last year did that happen? What what is it? Lack of education? Is it is it people feeling the pressure that I got this tag? I need to be successful. Like what what happened there? Why well, why? Because all of I the know above. the rules. It, it's either it's either by age or by by. Um, I'm, I'm sure you're referring to stone sheep. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's it has to bridge past the nose, right? Like it has to beat the bridge of those. It's not by age then. It's both. If it's broomed off one or the not, other. One or the other. Okay. Or yeah. age. Okay. Yeah. So guys just or guys or girls just not doing their proper glassing correctly. Is that right? I, I think you nailed it. I well, think you nailed it on both, right? It's some are feeling the pressure and uh, just some aren't taking the time and lack of education. So I, I think it's all. What a tragedy though, because if those are confiscated, it sure taints everybody's experience, especially the hunters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was an anomaly, Keith. Uh, typically every year there's a handful, like anywhere from three to to you know a high year would be seven eight nine or something like that i don't have the numbers but last year i think it was high 30s it was uh, extraordinary yeah what? it was yeah so you know we're, we're talking about it it's it's a blemish it's not something that we can be proud of but you know if we don't talk about it, we can't fix it right so you know trying to make people aware that we got to do a better job and you know i'm glad you come on the show unprompted and you talk that age matters and it certainly does and it's going to make a difference for for sheep in bc if people don't start paying attention to it well and and not to not to kick this dead horse but age matters for lots of reasons because because people would say to us well age it isn't just about shooting trophies hunting isn't just about shooting trophies hunting isn't just about shooting the longest horn or the longest antler and i would agree with that i would submit that some of the greatest bucks or moose or elk that I've ever killed had nothing to do with the Boone and Crockett score sheet, nothing. But the better hunt happens when the older age classes exist because it puts the proper social hierarchy into any of our species, meaning the rut happens properly, the rut happens on time, the rut happens and the behaviors and the social hierarchy happens where 
younger animals aren't allowed to breed yet and they're competing and they want to be there and they're pushing the envelope. And for example, in the whitetail world, if you don't have the upper age classes, you might as well not go out and rattle and grunt because those younger deer don't even know what it is, nor do they care because there's no competition to breed. So the rut's no fun if you don't have upper age classes of bucks. And I've hunted areas where like around home where we don't have upper age classes and growing one's really difficult and the rut's not good and our does don't get hit on the first estrus all the time. So the, the same bucks that bred are breeding 28 days later, they're going into the, into the winter, heavily, heavily um, malnutritioned and, and underweight. And, uh, and then out here we get ice storms and heavy snow. So we lose all our mature bucks in March and April. And people wonder why our numbers continue to decline. Um, and that's where upper age class animals sure help make the population healthier, make the population stronger, but also make all of our hunting experiences better if you have all the age classes of animal and start to manage to harvest the older ones. Yeah, well said. Couldn't say it any better ourselves. And that's exactly, it's, it's the same in sheep. There's no difference. It's, you know, it's that's the case across the landscape with, with every species as a general rule, right? So, um, yeah, very good points. And, and, uh, and lots of times too, you know, we, through our horn aging seminars and, and uh, educational classes, you know, not al- always is it best to, you know, there might be more than one legal sheep in there, but you, you kill all the old rams and, and now we, we get in that scenario as well. So going in and knocking three rams down that are all of breeding age is not, again, not good for, um, good for the species. So, um, okay, cool. Uh, let's segue a little bit and let's talk about the evolution of Canada in the rough. How did you guys get started? Where did that come from? I'm sure you've told the story a hundred times, but for our listeners, how did you guys get going with your, with your show? Um, is this something that was in your DNA from a young, as a young kid, or is it something that you kind of stumbled into? Yeah. Um, I'll try to try to, this one's easier over lunch because it takes some time, but I'll try to try to make it as quick as possible. So <clears throat> Paul, Kevin and I, like anybody listening to this that loves to hunt and fish, it's in your DNA. Like, and, and even if somebody introduces you to hunting or fishing at a later age, you're going to realize if you love it, it was probably already in your DNA. Like this is something that kind of just drives you and, and uh, captivates you if you've had a chance to be outside or outdoors. And um, so we always had a love for this stuff. And, and I had a wonderful father that continued to encourage it and promote it, um, you know, buying you the BB gun and trusting you to, and you'd beg him to get you outside. So long, long, long story short, um, Paul and Paul was in university. Kevin was in college. I just graduated, was trying to make it as a financial planner at 22 years old, probably not the best career decision at that stage. Cause, um, not a lot of people want to talk to me about my financial advice when I didn't have money myself. Um, but my boss at the time was building a 11,000 square foot log cabin out of, and please don't be offended, UBC guys, when I say this word, but giant white pines out of Ontario. So 60 foot white pines with eight foot diameters on them needed to be pioneer, spotted the bark off and then draw knifed. <clears throat> so he knew we were country boys and said, Keith, why don't you and your brothers go stay in my little shack up there and go do this for me for a summer. So all we needed was the shack in the middle of the woods as encouragement and the money was secondary. So 12 hours a day, we, we did this and realized real quickly, instead of working on a log each, that if we worked on a log together and rotated it three times, one on the top, one in the middle, one on the bottom on the draw knife. And if you've ever done that, it's, it's not the easiest work in the world, but it was, it was very rewarding. So standing there together as three brothers at this stage in our lives, how do we make a living doing what we love? And there's lots of hours to talk about it. So that's where, really the dream of working in the hunting industry began was three of us standing there working on this log cabin. Um, and our first idea was we come up with a whitetail magazine and, um, that, that, that began our journey in the hunting industry. So we come up with a magazine called Ontario monster whitetails magazine. Um, not as a selling feature here, but Ontario has one third of Canada's hunters. We knew that uh, we had a very avid niche market here. So we grabbed a very vertical niche market and we went for it. And, um, Three years into that, we met the current owner of Canada in the Rough named Thomas Bijan um, at trade shows, at events. And one thing led to another and we were big whitetail guys. He approached us about um, working with his show and him because he was looking to slow down, was getting busy and becoming his whitetail guys and and hunting whitetails on the show. And one thing led to another and Thomas um, approached us about buying it and, and taking it over. I think he could see that we were, we were eager, we were young, had some core values that he appreciated. Um, but most importantly, we'd proved that we could be successful in the hunting world in the business side. Because 
this is no secret. There's lots of hunters that are better than us. We don't claim to be on TV and be better than anybody. Um, lots are better than us, but we're very capable hunters and competent hunters. But running the business side is the challenge. How do you how do you get paid to do this? So that's where our little business turned us into the opportunity to take over Canada Rough. And Thomas stepped aside. We bought the business from him at his season five. And we're currently filming uh, four episodes already in the bank right now, season 19. So um, 14 years later um, and close to 200 episodes, we're, we're still having these wonderful conversations. And that's kind of the beginning of it. Um, Thomas exited for his own personal things with his other businesses. And we kind of took over the theme and the mentality of the show and the brand that had been built and kind of put our own spin and our own take on it as three brothers that grew up loving to hunt and telling the story of now us traveling Canada, visiting communities and, and hunting um, back to the core values of who we were. And that's, that's family and community and, and loving the hunt. So the show's evolved into what it is today. Um, and that's kind of the, the short story of it. Um, lots of risk and fear. It sounds a lot better when you tell it 15 years later, um, you know, remortgaging your houses and your wife's not sure if you can make it or all these hard conversations are another, they're, they're kind of the over the lunch stuff, but lots of scary days, but we wouldn't trade it for the world. And that's kind of the, the nuts and bolts of it. Right on. So let's talk a little bit about the business aspect of it. So, you know, for me, um, I, I've taken a video camera along and just, just for shits and giggles and, and yeah, that's all fine and dandy, but we know how much more difficult it is. Um, and then there's the added pressure of a business and trying to, you know, content and that sort of stuff. Um, you know, Talk about what it's like, um, you know, if you're just to go take the kids and go on a hunt and go kill something or just whatever, go out and be out there and not have your camera and then having to perform, you know, does that change the way, obviously it changes the way you do business, but does it take away from the enjoyment of what you do or, or is it is it that much better because you get to do all these cool trips and you're able to, you know, facilitate it through your business and um, t- Help me understand that a little bit because sure. that's one thing I always yeah, struggle with. I mean, it's a great question. I think you hit a few different points so that I might not be able to hit them all back for you. But I think it. I think the easy answer is it makes it better. It actually makes it better um, because we're all hunters. We're all anglers. So that's our passion. But but take somebody that their passion is 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 race car driving or golfing. Let's let's use golfing. If someone hits a hole in one by themselves with just just you, me, and Kyle and Steve, we're out and the three of us, and I hit a hole in one, you, the three of us are going to hand fist pump. We're going to probably give a hug, and we're going to have a great moment. But if the three of us are golfing, and the world was watching with a TV camera, and a crowd is watching, and it's going to live on Facebook, it's going to live on an episode, it's going to live forever, and everybody's going to see it, how much better is that? And that's not me boasting or bragging. But one of my favorite things to do in January is to sit on the couch with my kids and rewatch an epic, epic adventure from the fall. When that bull moose comes in grunting and slobbering and swaying his horns and his eyes are rolled back. I have a memory of that, but I also now have it caught on 4K HD, full audio, full sound, cut and edited, color corrected, um, audio enhanced. And I watch myself um, make a good shot, hopefully. (laughs) It's better. It's just better. It takes what we all love and enhances it. Now, does it come with some negatives? You better believe it does. Um, have I had to not shoot a double drop tine whitetail at 18 yards because I couldn't get on the camera? Yes. Have I had a big bull moose that gave me a pocket behind a tree, but the guy couldn't get on him quickly and I had to let him go? Yes. Have I uh, filmed in the mountains of BC? I didn't have the sheet tag. I had a goat tag. And my buddy said, Keith, I think he's legal but he's so close that we cannot ever risk this on a good day, let alone on TV and watch that beautiful sheep walk away. So does there moments for sure, but boys, is it worth it in the end when you can create something I can look back on 200 episodes of traveling Canada doing what I love worth every minute of it, every minute. Now that's the filming side. The business side is the money, which allows you to get by. Do I wake up at night worrying about where the next bill's coming from? Some days. Yeah, it's a business. Like anybody else in business, it's a business. Like it doesn't always work. Is somebody late on a payment? Are we going to make payroll? All those things are very real. Um, but like any business, you just find a way and keep keep making it work. So on the business perspective, you know, you talked about your lineup for this fall, and, and I'll be honest with you, I was blown away. I, that that's a comprehensive <laughs> hunt list for anybody, um, and uh, and no surprise because you you know it is a business and you got to produce, um, but. 
for you, for planning perspective, how far out are you planning? Obviously, you know, you're, you're building your priority. You know, you talked about your 12-year priority on your antelope hunt in Alberta. Um, how far are you looking down the road? Do you have your hunts planned out for five years? And obviously, it'll depend on what you get drawn and all that stuff too. But how far ahead are you planning? Yeah, um, no, a year ahead. That's it. That's it. So Is that it? Um, wow. Nobody put in for the antelope last year because we didn't have time. So that's why we're sitting at 12. There's a chance at 10, 11, you could have got it. We don't have time. So um, you're ahead. Lots of invites come in. So you you talk to those invitees and you say, hey, maybe next year, maybe the year after or, or when when's good for you. Um, that's one of the unique parts of the business. We are promoting hunting and hunting outfits and hunting provinces and hunting territories. So there is a demand for people needing and wanting to promote their business, but it's a year out. So Literally last week, we booked all the flights for the fall because that's that's how long it takes to put all the final pieces together to juggle the fall. It, it is a complete jigsaw puzzle. And um, anybody that knows knows a fall knows it happens so fast. Once Labor Day ends to the really the first big freeze up in the, in the back country, it is not a big window. You're looking at six or eight weeks of Canadian fall where you truly get to make some hay. And that's when we're making it. So that's when we're apologizing to our wives and our kids. We're splitting up as a team of three. We also have three full-time producers. That's how this is possible. Um, we're we're a, a company of seven full-time people, one in the office full-time, three of us as, as the brothers that kind of have our own daily jobs, including chief toilet washer from sales ads, marketing production schedules, you name it, we do that. But we have three full-time producers. So that's what helps us break up our fall and we can overlap. There might be a, a two-week period in September, early October, where the three of us don't see each other for two weeks because we're all on the road at the same time. And that's how we pull this off. Um, just out of curiosity, do you, have, do you guys ever like put in for points down? The, I know it's called Canada in the Rough. I get that. But do you guys ever put for points down south? Do you apply to you know some of these tags down south? that Because there's so many, right? Um, gives you a whole new – but with the show, is that outside of your – purview i guess yeah no i i don't want to keep repeating myself great question i, I keep seeing to say this all the time but um we don't and the reason is is to us very simple our brand is built on pure canadian and that's why we're so successful in the u.s in our opinion the show does extremely well on the national network sportsman channel usa because when somebody tunes in and and i am bragging here and i don't mean to like this isn't me boasting canada has world-class fishing and hunting at every corner. So when the world tunes into our show, when the U.S. turns into our show, it's not putting down Colorado mule deer, Colorado elk, Iowa or Kansas whitetail. They're spectacular as well. But show me an American who doesn't have it on their bucket list somewhere in Canada, come check that off. Whether it's Saskatchewan waterfowl, BC sheep, Newfoundland moose. Um, so we, we know and understand that our market is built around doing something that no one else is doing. There are a hundred U.S. shows that are producing unbelievable content, incredible hunters with incredible businesses, but they're all doing Kansas, Iowa, Illinois whitetails. They're all doing Western elk. They're all doing pigs in Georgia. There's no point in us playing in that field. Not that I wouldn't want to. And my goodness, if I got a good invite to go to Illinois, you, you bet I'd be there. Um, probably. But we do do Canada Rough on vacation, and five times over 19 years, we've done Africa once. We've done Italy. We've done Paul shot a moose in Russia. Paul shot a grizzly bear in Russia. We, we've went and visited for certain times, places, and reasons. Two of those reasons I just told you about were because we went and toured the, the Beretta factory in Italy. We went and toured the Sacco factory in Finland. Um, we worked with our, our to promote and share with the Canadians who these companies are and, and the background of them. So there's, there's a time and a place, but long and short, no. We purely stay in Canada because it's pretty awesome, and that's what we built their brand around. Right on. So 200 episodes. What's your favorite episode? Oh, boys. Do you have kids? Yep. Yeah, both of you? Can you pick one you like better? Depends on the day, right? <laughs> Absolutely, so, I can. I've yeah. only got one. So Ah, see, you che <laughs> you're cheating, man. You need, you need triplets to fall on your lap. Um this is like picking your favorite kid. Like, honestly, depending on the day, I can do that for you. I really can because some days I want to take the 12-year-old and drop him right at the back door. But um, <laughs> I had four boys, one girl. So you can imagine which one's my favorite when the girls much better behave. I was able to, to harvest a 220-inch Boone and Crockett bull moose up in Deese Lake, British Columbia. 
And it was my first time in the Rocky Mountains, not, not a, as a hunter, not as a, as a, as a, as a 19 year old, I get to see the West a little bit. And I was blown away, like blown away long before we got to the, the moose camp. I was on a horse for two full days and you, you could have, you could have knocked me over with a feather. I was so in awe, just sitting, taking it in. I'm riding a horse in October through the Rocky Mountains up Dees Lake. And I had my mind blown as the caribou ran across the top hills as the, just, it, it blew my mind. And then to see 30 moose a day and then to have, and I, I do no score. I, I, I'm pretty, I, I'm well aware of what a 60 inch, 220 inch. When I seen this moose before the outfitter didn't said, look at that. And he went, Oh my, I said, yeah, like, look, like 16 inch wide paddles and 40 inch wide long 15 on each side, like just a monster. And as it grunted its way into 60 yards and stood looking at us around a, a spruce tree and I was able to take them without a doubt, one of the greatest episodes of, of my life because the animal was amazing, but honestly, more important than the animal, the experience was so incredible and it encapsulated everything hunting should be. It took in all the sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and just brought to life. It gives me goosebumps right now thinking about it. Just that spectacular moment, kind of an aha moment, like how lucky are we to be standing here on top of the world taking this in. So it's interesting. I was going to ask you, is your, what's your favorite episode? And then is your your favorite hunt the same episode? And it sounds mm-hmm. like it kind of is the experience uh, translated to the episode. But like you said, it changes day to day as well. Yeah, and you know, one of the other greatest trips of my lifetime was I, I, I harvested nothing. And that's why this is a fun conversation for me. One time, um, I always get this wrong because it's not Vancouver Island, the Sunshine Coast. So where Beachcombers was filmed mm-hmm. over there, yep. uh, Gibbs, Gibson's. Gibson's. Okay. So we met a helicopter company over there, met the biologist, uh, Daryl Reynolds was his name, that brought Roosevelt out to the province of British Columbia down on the south corner there. 29 years before we did this and Daryl and us and the, the safety initiative of the forestry SFI did a tagging and collaring um, episode on, on the Roosevelt elk. And we were in a chopper finding and locating elk. I didn't get to dart them. Daryl did, but I was there. And again, one of the greatest experiences of my life because it took in all those things that we just talked about had nothing to do with me pulling a trigger. And to me, that's what outdoors men and women are all about. They're about going and enjoying the great outdoors to the fullest while enjoying the natural resource of our animals. And to me, it was very clear to me. I don't, I don't hunt to kill stuff. Um, I sure enjoy the hunt and I sure enjoy the meat, but 99% of the time I'm not very successful. So um, it was, it was another award winning moment in my brain and in my heart. And I think made an incredible show. Um, but those are great examples of, of just wonderful experiences in the woods. We're going to have to get you out here to BC for, uh, we're doing a Fraser River restoration project and, uh, you know, get your hands on some sheep and you can actually kill some sheep, which is not a good thing, but there's a, a number of diseased sheep. So we're basically, a lot of them are infected with a disease called mycoplasma ovi pneumonia and we're capturing them and if they're if they're infected we're removing them because uh, their offsprings are dying so if they're if they're if we eradicate the disease then they have healthy lamb crops and there's been zero recruitment in a number of these herds lately so unfortunately we're going in ca- capturing them testing them if they're positive we remove them from uh, from the system that, so that sounds like yeah. you make a great piece to our show and um, if it you works. guys don't know this and I'm not saying you should but we pride ourselves in being a documentary series. Um, we're the only hunt fish show in Canada that's airing now that I know of that it still remains and keeps our documentary status. Um, all the other TV shows keep an infomercial status and you'll see it in our show. We don't, we don't say the brand of the gun we shoot or the brand of the truck we drive. Um, we show it because um, they're a huge supporter of ours. Um, like Ram is a huge, huge supporter of ours, but we hold documentary status and it's all about telling proper stories. Um, and not making it about the product. It's making it about the animal. So that sounds like a great conversation that maybe after this is over, we need to love to visit with you guys more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We've actually got something going on this winter that actually might be a good fit for you. So um, yeah, we'll have to dialogue more on that. It'd be really exciting. And I, I think it'd be you know a really compelling story, especially, you know, you've been out West, you've been on a sheep hunt, so you appreciate the resource and, you know, you understand it, right? So it'd be really cool to tell a story about that. But uh, cool. Okay. Um, so obviously you're you're traipsing around with the camera, um, you know you're in the rut. You've you've you're, you've done 200 episodes. 
tell us about a near-death experience or one of the most harrowing experiences you've seen um, when you've been out and about. Yeah. Um, we get asked that a lot. And I always I always struggle with this one because I, I haven't had a near-death. Uh, so flat out, I haven't. But definitely my most um, hair-raising for me, I mean, I can tell you stories about my brothers. Um, it's weird not to divert from your question, but there's one neat thing about this and about growing up with either best buddies, your dad, your grandpa, your sisters, your mom, but being in business with my brothers, I can tell you every detail of every hunt they've had before TV. And I can certainly tell you every detail after TV. I know their hunts as well as they know mine. So I can tell you stories as if it's me, but it's not. But my personal story, my personal one are, um, it's, it all always seems to come back to British Columbia because there's grizzly bears there and grizzly bears actually scare me. They're one of the, the few things on this planet that actually scare me. Um, so uh, one night shooting two goats uh, up north, um, 9K from camp at dark, we slept on the mountain and, you know, left the goats 100 or so or 200 yards over there. But we were up high. We were in the edge of the snow and we didn't have a lot of place to go. That night was very concerning for me. Like, I, I can honestly tell you, like, I know this sounds ridiculous and anybody listening might be like, oh, what an idiot. But I was legit worried, even with a fire. And every time you had to go pee, you didn't walk very far because you have two warm goats laying there dead. And I've already seen grizzlies on this trip. The day before, and I don't expect you've seen these 200 episodes, but those that might remember this episode... Um, we're filming 10 goats up on a cliff on an edge and out of nowhere, we don't even know what it is when we first spot it. It looks like a brown boulder rolling towards them. And it's a full sprint grizzly bear chasing these goats off of the mountain. Like legit, they're bouncing down the mountain. I'm assuming he knows he's not going to catch them, but he's hoping one falls and breaks a leg. They're pinballing down the mountain as the grizzlies up on top looking over. Epic, epic clip for us. Amazing. But the day later, I'm sleeping beside two dead goats. So it was it was truly one of my most fearful moments. And then BC again, I shoot an elk right at dark. We can't bring them home. There's no way to bring them home. I'm, I'm I can see the the tent way below, but we gotta leave them. So I leave a coat and I, I I leave whatever I can. I know exactly where he is. And the next morning at sunup, we're there just to find a beautiful blood trail going down the steepest piece of mountain you could ask for. And here we are sliding on our bums with our rifles loaded between our legs, inch by inch, yelling and whistling, hoping he's not there at the end. And as soon as we hit the tree line, that's when the hair really stood on my head. And I'm creeping through the bush trying to find my freshly dragged grizzly elk. Um, and luckily for me, he was not there. We'd scared him off, but he mangled it pretty good. And we recovered 95% of them. But those are moments that stick out to me on on uh, scared, like little boy scared, like this could happen. So the the episode with the goats where that one came over the cliff, I I've seen that one. You you it was it was with Greg and Brent, right? That's right. Yeah, Greg. That's right. Greg's a good buddy yeah. of mine. <laughs> Greg is an absolute beauty and we could talk with Greg for another that that man could read my lips through binoculars. Yep. That's how good he is. Yeah, that. he's he's um, literally he's laughing at me trying to close the show. He's like, "You screwed up," and he's telling me from 100 years away with his binos. So, oh yeah. Um but yeah, yeah, Greg and Brent and Amazing guys, amazing hunters, fantastic humans. But that that piece to watch that, to witness that, just amazing. But uh, also made me a little fearful sleeping in a little one two man tent on the mountain with those big grizzlies. <laughs> I'll have to text Greg and tell, yeah. him, tell him about that. Yes, that is a uh, that is that's a good way to approach it, though. You know, anyone that uh, that doesn't have that respect for grizzly bears, it usually ends up in a pickle, right? So good on you for. I think that's a pretty smart approach to have for sure. And uh, and I, I share that fear with you <laughs> for sure. Yeah, they're the real if deal. there's one thing that's going to kill you in the mountains, it's a grizzly bear. Well, and, and not to keep on this, but Greg and Brent have told me stories, and as of other hunters, where you spot that bear a mile away with a valley between you, and it's turned and come the full distance yeah. at full speed. Like, like those are mind-numbing moments to me that that can happen because – knock on wood black bears don't seem to be like that which i spend a lot more time with but those grizzlies man when they see a human you're your food to them um mm -hmm. it's a scary so anyways yeah long and stored answer it was those two really stand out to me as two terrifying terrifying examples for me but also two of the greatest hunting moments of my life those two hunts were unbelievable and bring back incredible great memories yeah awesome 
So, okay, you, you've uh, you got quite a, a suite of hunts for this fall. Uh, what's on the bucket list? What's the dream hunt? If you could pick anything, do anything, money's no object, time, whatever, doesn't matter, bucket list, what would Yeah, be? you guys are going to think I'm making this up because it's you guys, but I've said it since the beginning of time. So as a little boy, it was to shoot a big buck, and then right behind that was a big bull moose, right behind that was a big elk, just because they were the things I grew up. I didn't even really know as a little kid growing up, before internet, before really hunting to be as big, I didn't even know Canada had sheep, to be honest, completely ignorant. As an adult, learning about what this country has, without a doubt, bar none, I'd give up hunting for the rest of my life if I could go on one sheep hunt. With Without a doubt, it is my, and it, it, you could tell me the species, I don't care. Like, I'd go shoot a Marco Polo, I'd go shoot, I want I want a Canadian curled sheep. Whatever form that comes in, um, that that has captivated me for the better part of two decades. Um, we've only had one hunt come up in our years of Canada in the rough and Kevin got to do it. He shot a 10 year old fan and stone um, in the Yukon and an unbelievable hunt, an unbelievable adventure. Um, I'm still incredibly jealous that he got that straw instead of me. Um, but he, that, that those hunts captivate me. I think, I think I'm in love with the species um, most, but I'm also in love with the adventure to get out there and, and get one. And um, that the effort to get a sheep, I just, I'm in love with the whole concept of it. So um, I know people say goats are a poor man's sheep. I, I don't think that's fair. Goat hunting is one of my favorite too. Um, but it got me out there in sheep country and really lit the fire for me. Awesome. Okay, I got a show uh, idea for you. So, th- th- and it's easy. So we're get, well, you can get, all, you on this episode, the three of you do all three sheep. So one guy does a stone, one guy does a doll, and the other guy does a bighorn. It's that easy. That's all you, do you need want, to do. Do you want to hear well, the problem? That's the difference between our business model and Thomas's, we've never, ever been able to pay for a hunt. So that's what eliminates us from the bucket list. So we need yeah. people to work with us and provide and swap for exposure. So that's what have kept sheep from being so difficult to come by. And very lucky for us, when we got to shoot that Yukon sheep, a new family bought the business. And um, without sharing their their, their business, uh, a booking agent didn't, didn't come through. And we're sitting on a falls full of tags. So... They happened to be an Ontario family called like the show and said, Hey, can you come help promote our business? And we were the first. <laughs> yes. Yes, we can. Yes, so, we can. Yeah. 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 Well, the good thing is, is uh, these stone sheep hunts are only 70,000. Yeah. Yeah. No big so deal. Right. Yeah. You're no big deal. And I probably should have done it when they were 40, but I was extra broke then. So um, <laughs> yeah, the, the price and the, the opportunity and, and good, good on them because they're that special. I mean, it's created, the demand is unbelievable and, and I'm thrilled to see that. Um, but yeah. it's probably put them out of something I'll ever get to do in my life. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you know, obviously, you talked about community. You talked about um, Canada. You talked about family. Uh, let's touch on the kids and and them coming up. Um, is do you do you see a future for them in, in on the show and, and taking it over, or is it just about getting the kids out? What does what that? How does that look? The future look for you know all, the next generation of Beasleys. Yeah, so um, I have five. Paul has five. Kevin has three. So I'm going to say no to the future of them taking over the show because I don't know how that fight would even shake out or break down or even consider it. So they're all going to be encouraged to get the best education they be could be follow their dreams and chase whatever great careers out there. And uh, probably no to some of them because I don't even know how you'd figure that out. But um, it's all about getting them outside. And, and we, we love, we love to spend time with our kids. I mean, uh, first and foremost, the number one thing the three of us are most proud of is being good dads and good husbands. And I, I have no shame in telling you guys that. I mean, the show is really cool and we're incredibly proud, but I'm more proud that my kids grew up feeling like they had a good dad that cared about them and loved them and, and believed in them and, and a wife that believes the same thing that, uh, that our family's most important. So that's why we couldn't do this solo. I, I couldn't handle this solo. Uh, it's important for me to be a hockey coach and be a baseball coach and be a church of them on Sundays. We miss a lot of time, but we don't miss as much as people think because we divide it by three very evenly every year. I'll do, I'll do three to five weeks of travel. Paul will do three to five weeks of travel. That's how we get it to happen. Um, but there's no greater pleasure for a father than to watch their, their kid love something that they love and, and watching them enjoy it, watching them take that in. Um, COVID opened some unique opportunities for us. Americans couldn't come up and visit. A lot of our bear hunts we do, we bring a, a, a sponsor along or a partner. Um, well, COVID stopped a lot of that. So 
when Caden was 12, my oldest boy, he came as my partner and I watched him shoot his first bear. The next year, same thing happened. I took Caden again. And then this year, last spring, I took him again. So he went on three straight bear episodes with me and shot three bears in a row. And on the third one, I didn't even hunt. It was all him and me and him being the hunter. Um, the first two, I shot a bear as well. I couldn't think of a better episode in my life than to watch him do it all. And me, me have nothing to do with it other than just being a great fan, watching him do it. So, yeah, there's nothing greater. Um, I just got back from camping with the kids, um, watching them all catch big fish. That, that makes my heart warm too, watching them smile and giggle. And, and uh, my little girl shot a, a buck with her crossbow and we'll be running a bear bait for her this year. She wants to shoot a bear like her brother. So we'll have her in the woods all fall chasing bears. And my little boy, my 12 year old shot his first deer last year. And um, those are just moments I, we just treasure. Do you envision more of that down the road where, you know, maybe some of these bigger hunts, and I know it's tough with the kids in school and stuff like that, but uh, do you envision stuff like that uh, more, you know, moose hunts and stuff like that where they might be able to sneak out and, and be part of the show and have them on the episodes? hundred percent. So first and foremost, the integrity of the show is what's important and what the viewers enjoy and the viewers watch. And it's not about putting our kids above the brand or above the benefit of it but people seem to respond incredibly well to us being out there teaching our kids and raising our kids. So yeah, I, I see a day where Newfoundland has me coming for a moose hunt and I say to them, Hey, I'm coming, but how about I bring my 16 year old and he shoots his first moose instead of me. Um, Cause I think the story might get more compelling than somebody watching me shoot my 40th moose. So those are things that hundred percent we've never discussed as a business, not part of our business model, but I think it's the natural ebb and flow as we raise our kids and as dads, we don't have as much time as other dads have to hunt with them because we do travel. I miss some really prime time with these these kids. So if I can have them take my spot on a show and me be along with them as as uh, just a big fan, encouraging and teaching them, that'll be something we'll be looking to do more and more, I think, and I feel. Yeah, right on. Awesome to see. So, you know, you've got a platform, you got a voice, right? you got tons of followers. People watch you. They know who you are. Uh, you know, there's been all these emotive issues over the years, you know, in BC, you booked back this on the Grizz hunt. Um, I think we reached out to you last year and you guys were really good about, uh, we had um, science-based yeah. wildlife management. We had an Act Now campaign that we we were promoting and basically, you know, there was this narrative that, you know, people wanted to shut hunting down because they, they just didn't agree with it. Emotionally, they were, same narrative as a grizzly, just, you know, basically flying in the face of wildlife management based on science. So, um, you know, the, you know, the gun laws, the things we're seeing there, um, you know, how, how important it is, is it for you guys to use your platform to support these things? Um, does it work for you? Is it, is it difficult? Do you have challenges around sponsors and stuff like that? You know, is, is that a problem for you guys or is it so important that you guys will back this stuff regardless? Yeah. I mean, listen, at, at the base of every business, at the base of every human is your core beliefs and your morals. And that, if that's not leading what you're doing, then you're probably doing it wrong. So um, if, if I think we wear our, our heart on our sleeves here, I think we, we, um, we walk a, we walk a line that's pretty clear and we don't really shy away from it. Um, we're here to promote hunting and we're here, we're here to encourage people to get outside and we're here to encourage governments to back hunting. We're here to encourage change for the better for hunting. Um, and we find it slipping in the wrong direction. So we're the first to stand in line. And, and if, if our voice does have an effect or if it is heard, um, we're the first to stand up and, and back that. Now, you alluded to it, Kyle, I need, I need to say that it needs to match good sound practices. It needs to match science. It needs to match a resource being renewable. Um, just like I'd back natural resource in oil and gas as I would in, in timber. I, I believe in that stuff. I believe in a natural resource helping. And I believe animals are an incredible natural resource that we need to use, utilize, but love and respect and cherish all at the same time. And I believe that's happened for many years and we need to continue to do it. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, we're happy to stand up and share our thoughts, um, and, and our opinions, but there's also a few things too, where I don't mind getting into this with you. Um, people say, why don't you ever show a polar bear on your show or a wolf hunt on your show? First to admit and tell everybody out there, we encourage wolf hunting. We encourage polar bear hunting when managed right. When, when none of it says we can afford 80 polar bears, please, please come and support their community. Please come and support them. Um, but <laughs> I have to watch what hill I'm willing to die on on what day. And we air on national television. 
Um, we have seven networks in Canada, one in the U.S., and 25 countries overseas. The national television network that we air on, I'm not willing to be removed from TV for grabbing a political campaign that may have me booted where I, I, I win one fight because I did it, but I lose 99 because I'm no longer on the air. So we do walk a line very clearly and publicly where we encourage all those things, but there's two or three species we just will not film and harvest on the show because it just opens the door to be shut down. It makes very little sense for us to lose our platform over those things. And we're aware of what those are. So we watch that very carefully. If that is a well, I not answer your question directly, but there's a whole lot of answer to your question. Yeah, there is a whole lot of answer. And, you know, that's just the thing is, um, you know, you talk about what you have to do on a network television to get that, but there's also just what the public uh, wants to see and what they don't want to see. And, you know, we have to be smart about our audience too. And for years, it, it wasn't, it was never in the forethought about, you know, as hunters, we just kind of lived our lives and we show what we wanted. And, and some people did a real disservice to our hunting community, right? On, on things they showed, things they mm -hmm. did and stuff now that has done literally decades of damage. And now there's generations of people that don't like us because of things we've done in the past. I think we have to be a bit smarter than that, where this isn't, uh, this isn't, isn't what it used to be. Hunting is different now, right? And I think we, as hunters, we have to think about what we're portraying, how we're showing ourselves, and if if we're not, if we don't do that, it's just going to continue to hurt us over and over and over. Total, totally agree. I mean, listen, the the number one thing we, my brothers and I, feel we have to do is be the example of what a hunter is, quote unquote, what a hunter is. I know we come in different shapes, sizes, sex, ethnic backgrounds, blah 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 blah. blah. But the public who doesn't hunt needs to see a hunter as a, a, a wholesome member of a community that is out trying to do good. And, and if they see us any different than that, we're failing. We're failing. Mm -hmm. They cannot see us as a bloodthirsty group trying to kill stuff. That, that is not what a hunter is. Never has been, never will be. There was sustenance hunting long before the three of us were around. And that was done differently. That was done um, through different processes. That's not what hunting is through properly managed tags and biology and science and waiting 11 years to shoot one antelope. That's the message, right? I'm waiting 11 years, 12 years to shoot I antelope because the Alberta government said we could because there's enough to do that and sustain and manage a resource. This story is, is wonderful. And I don't know if you guys have seen it and this isn't, isn't intended to be a self-promote, but one day sitting on a Yukon mountain, um, snowed in, we're about to leave our hunt early, didn't fill my bull moose tag. Think of that. Didn't fill my bull moose tag in the Yukon. Was I disappointed? <laughs> you bet. Was I mad or upset? Absolutely not. But sitting on a stump in the middle of the mountain, my producer says, why don't we do a little video on why we hunt, Keith? And I, I created a, we created a video. And if, if you're bored after, just, just Google it, why we hunt from Canada Rough. And we just spend five minutes telling why we do this. Why? And we back it with videos. So there's a bit more appeal to it than just hearing my voice talk about this, but we hunt because, because we love it. It's who we are. It's what we do. Now it's our job to take care of the people that are in hunting and the animals we hunt. There are 8 billion people on the earth today. We have already encroached. We're here ready or not. Here we come. We're here. So people that say, just leave it up to mother nature. They're wrong. Mm -hmm. You can't leave it up to mother nature anymore. It, it's impossible. The city I live in in Peterborough, we didn't have deer when my dad was a boy. He counted on one hand the deer he seen. Corn came in 1975 and the deer exploded in our area, in our region. We're managing these things. Why did the snow goose explode in North America? Because the farming industry exploded and opened all the fields up in the south. Have they always lived in the Arctic? Absolutely. But 5% lived there 200 years ago. Now that there's too many and there's 50 a day that a hunter can take. Why? To manage them because the government's oiling eggs and euthanizing them because they're eating themselves at a house and home. Had the hunters been involved earlier, we could have helped manage this resource and partake in this, this. So we do this to look after it with the government, with the biologists, with the science. But I hope for anybody listening that the government and the scientists and the hunters are willing to work together to do it right and not take it away, but enhance it and make it better and well-managed and well-practiced. Yeah. Well said, man. And, um, you know, so I guess on that note, you know, you guys are doing your part. You're trying to create the the, the right message. You are creating the right message. Um, 
you know, what would you tell, you know, hunters? And because I hear this a lot, guys are like, well, I'm still going to, you know, post my wolf kill on there or do this or do that. And as a hunter, you have the right to do that. And nobody's ever going to tell you that you can't, at least not yet. But is it the right image that we want to portray for our business? And when somebody that doesn't understand what we do sees something that you're doing out there that's questionable or concerning, you know, is that the image we want to say? So, you know, when people say, you know, call you out saying, well, why aren't you, you know, doing your wolf hunt? Um, you know, what? how can we argue back to them? You know, what do we need to say to sort of encourage people to, to stay, the, stay the course, I guess? Well, I mean, I think it depends on your platform, right? If I have a million people watching the show and a large percent of them are non-hunters, a large percent of them are just members of our community who don't do what we do, who don't understand what we do, and they view hunting off of exactly what I show. Remember exactly. TV can't cheat or can't lie. It's what I show is what they see or what I portray. Then then the way I share my message absolutely matters. If it's one hunter with 100 friends on Facebook, totally different. Totally different, in my opinion. Um not to say that he should do anything or she do anything differently than me. They can share their lifestyle and their passion the way they feel the need and want to. But to me, you have to watch that a little differently. It depends on who their audience is. I have to protect the future of having a voice. That, that's our priority is to keep having a voice. Right now, we're the last all-hunting show left on national television in Canada. Why is that? Because it's very difficult to make a business this way. And secondly, it's very difficult to make it politically correct. I could rhyme off a thousand companies that we all know and use every day that hunters use every day that will not put their name on a hunting show. Why? Because it's politically incorrect. So the, 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 the groups that do Ram trucks, like I'm talking a few non endemics now, Ram trucks, Hercules tires, chili moose coolers. And I know I'm plugging, but this is, this is an important plug. Those people, those groups are willing to say Ram trucks knows hunters use your trucks. We're happy to support inside your business and your world. So, what I would say to you is I have a full body black timber wolf mounted 20 feet from me in our showroom. Proud of, proud as punch of him, but he didn't need to go on air. Was it filmed? Yeah, it was, but it's never seen the light of day for a reason. I don't think it's important for me to tell that story. Yep. Completely agree. I've got a grizzly. I've got a ton of wolves. I've got lynx. Very, very rare. Do they make it on social media because that little snapshot in time can be spun into something that it's it's not about and i i did an article uh for one of the major news outlets in bc after they closed the grizzly hunt and just talking about supporting it and why it's important to support it and the the benefits to, to wildlife and myself and everything as you touched on and i got death threats my, my kid got death threats my wife got death threats just because I simply stated, no, this is this is not a science-based move and you shouldn't be doing it. So I completely get it. Fully agree, Steve. And 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 listen, we, we I, I I can't quote to you what we did, but I, I, I think you referenced and you remember we, we were the first one to answer the call when you guys asked for help. We we did a video, we we promoted um, this decision for grizzly bears needs to be made on science, this to, you know, all that stuff. We get death threats, I'm not trying to one up you. Um, every every week, literally, mm -hmm. like we get emails. I, you should be hung from a tree and gutted. Yep. I hope your wife and kid are murdered in front of you. Mm -hmm. All that stuff. Do we take them personally? Not really. But um, are these people serious? Yeah. And that's one of my messages too to the world. Um, animals are not more important than humans. Like I really don't believe they are. Like I really don't believe animals are more important than humans. But they're right next to us, and we need to be the stewards of them. We need to look after them and govern them and take care of them. Um, you know, cattle don't run free anymore. We, 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 we need to look after them. My, my friend's a vet in Alberta. He's, he's amazing. What he does to make sure cows live healthy. We need to look after them. We need to look after chickens and pigs, but we also need to look after sheep and elk and whales. We need to take care of these animals because we've been given the power from whoever you want to believe that is to govern and, and have a domain over, over these critters. So it's our job, but I don't believe for one second that because you showed, shot a grizzly bear that someone should murder you for it. But somebody would. Like they're, that, that's that's a real that's real. People may not understand that they're they're dead serious. Um, they're dead serious. And if I shot a wolf, someone would, if they had the right or choice, would choose that I die over that wolf. I I struggle with that. Um, I really do. I find it crazy. Um, but it doesn't negate the fact that I need to love and look after animals. Why do I practice with my bow? so much my rifle so much my crossbow so much 
so that when I do harvest an animal, it is the most effective, humane way possible. I don't want to see an animal suffer any more than anybody else does. And you better believe that I'm teaching my kids that as well, right? When we make that shot, it needs to be right here at the right spot. I watched my boy wait for 11 minutes at full draw with a crossbow up on a rest before that bear gave him the shoulder. Why? Because we weren't risking wounding that animal, you know? So those are the things I think we all need to be cautious of and we all need to keep telling the story. Other, other TV show hosts may disagree with me, right? I, I'm not here to beat a drum of anybody else. This is our belief. I believe we need to watch. There's platforms we need to take and there's some we need to avoid. Um, depends what group you're with and where we're talking. If, I, if I'm at a group, I, I've, I've been lucky enough to speak at a sheep event and trade shows in British Columbia. I've been lucky enough to be out there lots. If we're in a, the right audience with just us, we can talk about a few different things. But if we're talking to people that don't understand what we're doing, we need to watch what our messaging is and how, how they understand what we do. Well said, Keith. Awesome. Uh, great messaging and love it. Um, okay. So uh, just to wrap things up, people want to check out what you do, where you go. Um, let's do a plug for, for all your different platforms. <laughs> All right, I got to think about that for a second. Um, you, <laughs> YouTube's our new big growth area. That's the one we're we're trying to grow. Um, we're you know we started in the TV world, then we moved to the Facebook and Instagram world. Now we're really focusing on YouTube. So, um, so I, I guess I could say go check out our YouTube page if that's a thing. Like I, I like uh, we we would love for you to subscribe to that. I I think we just had a video hit two million views the other day. Actually, want to talk about pro. Um, pro and negative responses, put something in on YouTube, the whole world's watching. Then I'm kind of blown away by the way the responses went. We literally made a bear video to help educate people on proper shot placement of black bears because we read so much about people talking center to center, this and that. So we finally made a video which showed 50 kills in 15 minutes, over 15 years, by the way. Like this is, but from our kids to us to our guests, and it went crazy and shocked me how much negative. Um, Really, really shocked me. So to me, it was a very educational shot placement video. But YouTube, um, we're very active on Facebook and Instagram. We're, we're on there weekly. Um, that's our way to keep in touch with the audience kind of on a daily basis. And the TV still remains the heart of what we do. So City TV, every Sunday morning is uh, is our show. You can find it on there on air every week. And then we actually just had a really unique um, thing start this July, um, just a few weeks ago. We took the former 15 years that haven't been on air since seeing the light of day since 2009, 2012, 2015. So that, that show we were talking about with Greg and Brent, um, those are all archiving for an hour special on Sportsman's Canada. So they're starting to re replay those over the next two years so we can start putting those shows back out there. So long story short, that that's where, and then we live on the uh, Sportsman Channel USA in the US for the first two quarters of the year. So we're just ending now, but we'll be back on there in January. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate all you do. Always appreciate your content and just, uh, you know, from a greedily from the society perspective, we always appreciate you looking out for us and keep an eye out for things. And I know that, you know, whether it's through me or, or one of our other directors or Steve, you guys are always keen to support where you can. So thank you for all you do. We appreciate it, guys. You live in a spectacular part of the world. We love it there. Wish we could visit there more, to be honest with you. Uh, the demand for hunting is so high that BC hasn't really needed much promotion lately. There's been so much, uh, so many hunts sold in that part of the world. Then that speaks volumes to to the type of place you live and the type of species. But we appreciate your guys' support. Appreciate anybody that's promoting hunting. Honestly, it's it's uh, it needs everybody's voice and everybody's hands to pitch in. And um, hopefully we continue to have governments that'll uh, in the future look to support us. Fingers crossed. Yes. <laughs> Another day's conversation, maybe.